Please bow your head with me as you pray to our Lord, our God, for this sermon. Father, we thank you for this joyous occasion to gather in your presence with your beloved and worship you. And we thank you for song, and we thank you for um, the glorious sunshine, we thank you for winter, we thank you for Thanksgiving feasts and the anticipation of Advent. We pray, Father, that you, you open our hearts now, and then you speak right into the heart of our pain and the heart of our struggles. We pray, Father, that you shine your light into the dark places inside of us, give us hope, purify us, cleanse us. Make your home here forever, eternally, here in us and in our midst. Turn turn our hearts and our minds toward you, Father, that we may glorify you not just this morning, but every day this week. Teach us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of of the Father who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Now, there's quite a lot of giving in that small section. The Father gives, the Son gives, the Spirit gives. Give, give, give. That's how I would describe what's being done here. The Lord our God, the triune God, gives. That's what he does. The Trinity, which is what I'm going to be talking about today, is not an introductory doctrine. It's not meant to be set aside after we give our intellectual assent to move on to what we sometimes call more practical doctrines. The Trinity is a mystery, and it is a mystery that defines our relationship with God. We are not talking about the kind of mystery that we find in Sherlock Holmes' novels, in which we search for clues and deduce a conclusion that is, that perfectly re- is reasoned perfectly and accounts for all the evidence. It's not that kind of mystery. The mysteries of God are secrets which, in part, have been or are being disclosed to his people and require a lifetime of meditation and contemplation. If God could easily be understood in an afternoon, I like to say he wouldn't be God. It's a mystery that takes our whole lives to sort of understand. Matthew eleven twenty five through 27. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone the Son chooses to reveal him. What is revealed about the Trinity teaches us about ourselves and our world. Jesus reveals the Father as the Father, and he reveals the Spirit as the Helper who continues his work of revelation and renewal once he has gone back to heaven. Jesus is the key. He's the access point to the Trinity. But we can't lose the Father and the Spirit in our emphasis on Jesus. We often focus so much on Jesus that we lose the other persons of the Godhead altogether. It's all Jesus all the time in our age, which is right. He's the king. 
But we are not Unitarians. We are not Unitarians. And the fullness that Jesus offers, mysteriously enough, is the fullness of the triune God. What he wants to give us is the Father and the Spirit and himself. The Trinity is revealed as a Trinity through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It was a mystery up until that point. Jesus comes and he shows us that God is, in fact, a Trinity. The Son reveals the Father as the Father, and as the mediating high priest, he reveals the Holy Spirit as the helper. Jesus reveals the Trinity to us in order to heal the separation that permeates our lives. Think about it. Our life is full of this struggle. Me or you? My desires and wants and needs, your desires and wants and needs. How do I live in a community of people together while I remain myself? How much of myself do I give up for others? Do I give up any of myself for others? There's this brokenness and this selfishness that permeates our relationships. And part of what the divine love shown to us in Jesus Christ, what it teaches us is how to be diverse and unified at the same time. That's one of the great mysteries that Jesus reveals to us. How does diversity exist in perfect unity? How? Well, the Trinity. And the Trinity is shown to us by Jesus Christ. The reason that I call them a community of love is because everything that they do is for one another. Jesus comes to reveal the Father and the Spirit. The Father sends the Son so that we would honor and glorify him and lift him up as king. They both send us the spirit. They're they're a community that gives. They give honor and love to one another and give love to us by constantly pouring out, pouring out. They give and give and give, and what they get is us, believe it or not. Why they would want that, I, I don't know. That's a sermon for another day. Okay, I call the Trinity the community, community of love. For me, it makes a lot more sense than three persons in one essence. Three persons in one essence is logically fine, but I have a hard time getting behind that sort of, you know, as a vision. Yeah, three persons, one essence. What is an essence, by the way? I mean, that's it's a $3 word for being, and I mean, that could take me all day as well. I call the Trinity the community of love. They live together in perfect unity, giving of themselves, And they want us to join into that community. That's the whole point of salvation. They want you and me in this community that they have had eternally. So what we're going to focus on today is each person. I'm going to cover in three points the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And see how their selfless giving for our good and each other's glory should be a model for us. Should be an example for us on how to live our lives. Should be the thing that we reflect upon that gives us joy, that gives us the thankfulness that Pastor Hellickson was talking about. We treat the Trinity as a mere doctrine, but it's not a doctrine, it's a person. God wants us to have his fullness and has done far more than we can truly ever understand so that we will, in fact, have that fullness. Until we stop and count our blessings, see truly what they together have done and are doing we won't experience true fullness, not until we stop and consider and take count of the things that they have done for us together. That is how we come to true joy. That's how we fill our hearts with true thankfulness. And so we're going to begin today with the Father, the Father who loves the world so much he gives and gives and gives. 
Now, that's my favorite part of John 3.16, that famous verse. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about just the first part. God so loved the world he gave. That is remarkable and astounding. And, and it's so glorious, it's almost hard to get to the next part. He gives us the sun. So what I'm going to do is focus a little bit on what he gives. What does he give? Does he just give us the sun, or does he give us other things? God the Father is a giver. He can't hold himself back. He gives and gives and gives. Generation after generation, unworthy of the gift or not, going back to before the dawn of time, God so loved the world he gave. That's what he does. He never wearies of it. He never runs out. He wants you, and he wants you to be holy, joyful, and full to overflowing. What has he given to you? Well, I mean, I could go a thousand different directions with that. But I'm going to start with the very simple basics, very simple basics. What, what does the Father give you? Matthew six thirty through 31. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Okay, let's forget for a moment about the deep heavens and the cosmos and the stars and the oceans and all these things that God has given us. Let's just sit right at our kitchen table and look around and see what he gives us. God provides clothing, food, and drink. Now, here's my question. Do we lack any of those things? Are these a daily struggle for us? Is anybody in here struggling to get these three things? Or is the abundance of God poured out on us cause us to not even see these things? We don't even pay attention to them. I'm hungry, I go to the fridge. Ten minutes later when I'm hungry again, sorry wife, I go back to the fridge, right? I don't even pay attention to what he's given us. The context here okay, in which Jesus is telling us about not worrying, he's explaining that the Father knows what we need. He's explaining, the Father knows what you need. Okay? He's, he's taking care of the grass, he's taking care of you. And what the Father always gives us is not what we think we need, but what he knows we need. Okay? He's the all-knowing, all-seeing God, and he is concerned with our ultimate good. He knows what we need. This is the point Jesus is making. And he gives it before we ask it. It says in Matthew 6, 8, For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. He knows what you need. Trusting him is difficult. Trusting him is difficult, especially if we never spend any time considering where everything we have comes from. If you never spend any time thinking about where that steak on your plate came from, when it comes time to really worry about much deeper things, you don't have this gratefulness already in your mind. It's going to be very difficult to trust the Father to give them to you. But trusting Father in the big things starts with being thankful to him for the little things, for the small things, the everyday things, the things that really don't seem to matter to us. Who gave us this life, this meal, this car that we're sitting in? But we have to trust him because who is going to know what we actually need more than a God who can see everything, who knows everything, who gets every eventuality, who can count the numbers of hairs on your head, who is holding together all the molecules of the universe? That is a God we ought to trust to give us what we actually need. And to get there, to get there, to put a lot of trust and faith in him in our difficult days, we have to start with the small stuff, the love and the trifles. Start small, work big. This is, this is one of the things that, about the Father that we need to understand. 
What we think we know, what we think we know that we need, what we think we need, I'm sorry, is determined by a point of view that doesn't reach beyond the horizon. I can't see later this afternoon, let alone tomorrow. And so there's a lot of things that cause me to be afraid. But here the stake is in front of me. Somehow it got here, <laughs> right? Somehow it got here. And, and I don't think about that. I don't think about that he was taking care of me already, and so he's going to take care of me tomorrow. That's usually something we don't think about. The Father's perfect comprehension of everything includes our needs. He knows what we need already. He knows. And so if he knows already, why don't we ask him? Seems legit to me. (laughs) If he already knows what we need and we're in need, why don't we ask him? But this is not all. This is the everyday stuff that we really need to wrap our minds around. It's difficult to get to this next part. After thousands of years of giving to humanity, from the garden to the ark to the Red Sea to the temple to the exile and the restoration, after all of that giving, the God who does not tire, the Father who does not tire, saved a special gift. He waited to give it to us, mankind, after we left no doubt that we did not deserve it even while at the same time we proved how badly we needed it. He withheld this one amazing gift. Just like the son gave the best wine last, so the father gives his best gifts last. God so loved the world, he gave us his son. He gave us his son. To truly learn the nature of divine love, the father gave us his son as a sacrifice. We didn't get that the meat on the table was a gift from him, so he's got to go bigger to get our attention. As a generous gift of blood, perfect, untarnished, and pure, he gave us his son as a sacrifice to cleanse us and make us fit for the gift of God's eternal presence. Sin prevents us from living with God. Sin kills and it makes us unclean. God is eternal and clean. You can't mix oil and water. You can't mix the eternal, clean God with the created, unclean beings. You can't mix the two. The Father sent his Son to make us eternally clean, to make us into water. Without Christ, there is no relationship with the Father. Okay, This is what the Son gives us. The Father gives us the Son so that the Son can give us the Father. That breaks my brain a little bit, but it's an amazing reality about our God. He gives and gives and gives and gives, and his giving inside of it is more giving. He hides. It's like one of those... Russian dolls, where you open it and there's more, and then you open it and there's more, and then you never, you never get to the end of the gifts. But too often, too often, as good Jesus-loving Christians, we we talk about we talk about the Christ coming into the world as if as if the Father was sitting in his armchair one afternoon. And called Jesus in from the kitchen and said, hey, son, boy, go out in the yard and take care of that sin thing and come right back when you're done. Come right back when you're done. This is how, for a lot of years, I thought about it. Right? Dad's in heaven, sitting there in the lazy boy, and he sends Jesus to go take care of sin like, like I send my kids to go take care of the leaves. Come right back when you're done. Divine suffering is usually focused on Christ, but the Father went with him. The Father said, Go and I'm going to go with you. He watched. He participated in Christ's life here on earth. The Father is intimate with it, not distant. 
And in the end, when we were mutilating and murdering his boy, God the Father stood there, watching, holding back. What father does that? What father gives this kind of gift? Who can stand there while someone crushes and murders their child? The ultimate punishment on the cross was that Christ was without the presence of the Father. But that's a two-way street. The Father was also apart from Jesus. The Father was separated from his Son, who had never done anything worthy of the smallest discipline. He gets the worst kind of discipline. The Father humbled himself. See, this is... We get very confused when we talk about the one God. We talk about him very specifically. Here's the Son and what the Son does, and here's the Spirit and what the Spirit does, and here's the Father and what the Father does. But they are one unified whole. It wasn't just Jesus humbled on the cross. There's the Father who can speak all of these Roman soldiers into dust, standing aside, laying down his power, humbling himself at the foot of the cross while we mutilate and murder his boy in front of his eyes. This is the Father. Unlike Abraham, God the Father led his son up the mountain to be sacrificed, and the Father watched as the dogs encircled and destroyed him. The Father did this willingly, with an open heart towards us, the wretches who committed the murder. There are two important reasons that the Father did this. There's two important reasons the Father did this. He stood there, and he watched, and he did nothing. The first is so that in Christ, through this gruesome and beautiful death, it is possible for the Father to give more bountiful gifts. He doesn't just give us the gift of the Son. In the gift of the Son, he gives us a cacophony of other gifts. One of them is the affectionate acceptance. Think about this. At Christ's baptism, the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And in Christ, God the Father wanted to say that to us. He wanted to give us that gift. He knows how badly we need affection and acceptance. He knows how lonely we are. He knows how big a failure our fathers are. He wants to be the Father that says, Yes, these are my children in whom I am well pleased. It's the gift beyond the cross. It just starts with giving the son. In the son, he keeps giving. He keeps giving. And one of those things is that the perfect God tells wretches like you and I that we are his beloved children and whom he is well pleased. But the father isn't done. Can you believe this? I'm not done yet. I have not moved to the section about Jesus. I'm still going about the father. Jesus is a gift, and through Christ we receive the gift of affirming love, but the Father is far from finished. His gifts are abundant, overflowing, dare I say, extravagant. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also in him give us all things? That's the inheritance. It's all Jesus's, and in Jesus it's ours. God so loved the world he gave for thousands of years. And he wasn't tired yet, he gave the Son. And he wasn't tired yet. And in the Son, he gave us love and acceptance and inheritance and all things. This is what he gives us. Start with the stake 
and get a telescope and look out to the far reaches of the cosmos, from the stake to the far reaches. That's what he's giving you in Christ. That's the fullness that the Son wants to give us. He gives us the Father so that the Father can give us all these things. The Father gives and gives and gives. He gives gifts that seem superfluous like snow and eggnog. And he gives gifts that cost him a great deal of pain and sorrow. But he never tires and he never runs out. His gifts provide our daily need, filling our tables and our closets and our gas tanks. His gifts provide for our deepest spiritual needs, acceptance, approval, and love. It should startle us how far he's willing to go in giving. And why aren't we more grateful? What prevents us from being overwhelmed? Why are we so apathetic towards his generosity? Lord, give us eyes to see and understand. Lord, give us the gift of faith to believe that we, so that we may experience true joy at your right hand. That should be our prayer. Why do we care so little in the face of all this giving? What impossible gift do you desire? Think about it. Think right now about that thing that you think you need, that you're pretty certain you need, that seems impossible. Is it? Is it impossible? Do you think he would turn a deaf ear to you? Contemplate the suffering of the Father at the cross, which he endured willingly, and ask him for one more miracle, to heal and cleanse you today. He will give you what you need. He already knows. Little children, he already knows. Next, let us consider the Son of God. Don't worry, this part isn't quite so heavy. The Son of God, Jesus Christ. After the fall, we were given a promise that a son would come into the world to reverse the fall. God reveals that there are two warring families. There are two warring families in this world. And this antithesis is the framework for the rest of the Bible. Please turn with me to Genesis 3.15. The fancy term for it is the proto-evangel, but don't worry, you don't have to remember that. There's no test. Genesis 3.15. This is three chapters into Genesis here, and this is when the story gets really interesting. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15. So a son is going to come. God gives this promise. He's giving gifts right here in Genesis 3.15. There's going to be a son that comes that sets all of this straight. The next story in Genesis, not too shockingly, is the story of Cain and Abel, about two sons, a son of promise and a son of cursing, or as we like to say in the Kloss house, a son of God and a son of the dragon. This is what the Bible is all about, the anticipation of the son of promise. Everyone is waiting for the son after Genesis 3.15. When is the son going to come? When? Who is it going to be? Who is going to slay this awful dragon that is holding us down, who's enslaved us? God promises mankind that both lines will descend from Eve. Go back to it. He says, I will put enmity between your seed and his seed. But everyone who's born at that point comes through Eve. So mankind is going to pr- has produced essentially this war between these two families. Okay, the very next story, like I said, was Cain and Abel. Genesis is all about this. Isaac and Ishmael. 
Jacob and Esau, Moses and Pharaoh, Samuel and David, Saul and David. It's all these stories about sons. Everyone is waiting for the son to show up. Brothers at war, who is going to free us from this struggle? Joseph, is Joseph going to do it? Nope. Is Moses going to do it? No, he failed too. Joshua, Samuel, David, the people of God are standing around always. When is the son going to come? Who is it? Is it David? Nope. Isaiah? Nope. John the Baptist? Nope. The line of man utterly fails. Left to itself, it utterly fails. When will the son come to slay the dragon? Who will free us from this bondage? Who will set things right? This is what the Advent story is. This getting ready, this preparation, this anticipation that starts in Genesis and continues till Malachi and into the 400 years following the book of Malachi. Who is the son of promise who will arise with healing in his wings? Who is the suffering servant? Who is the ladder back to heaven? Who is the greater prophet? Who is the eternal king? Who is the warrior who can slay the great serpent? God the Father waited till all hope was lost, utterly lost. Rome ruled the world. The sons of the dragon stood supreme. And the stage was set for his boy. The stage was set for his boy. The promised one, the fulfiller of all of God's promises and all of man's hopes. The son came miraculously into the womb of a 15-year-old virgin. He was laid in a feeding trough. He worked with wood. He hung out with prostitutes and cheats and the working class. The gold armor hung in the temple. The Jews had it there. The Jewish people waited for an earthly kingdom to rival the ages. They were prepared. They were ready. And all the while, the heavenly kingdom came quietly, beginning in the outskirts, in Nazareth, and spread through teaching, through fellowship and table talk during meals in private homes. He wasn't beautiful, this son. He wasn't one you would notice. But when he spoke, people knew it was the truth. His words healed people. His voice commanded the natural order, and it obeyed him. Death wasn't stronger than his word. His words tore open the secret places of shame inside of all of us and slew the dragons that lived there. His words built an empire that began to spread from heart to heart. And we did the only thing, the only thing we poor, foolish people know how to do in the face of the holy, that burning light that exposes our wickedness. We tried to snuff it out. We slew him, and in slaying him, we tore open heaven and blessing rained down on us. As we drove the spear into his side, we opened older, deeper magic. And as we slew him, he slew the dragon. The sun came, finally, and in his death, he freed us from the strong talons of the great dragon. Jesus is the source of comfort in a painful world. He fought us with his suffering, and he beat us. We caused him to suffer, and he suffered it faithfully at our hands so that, we could enter, so that he could enter into all of our pain, all of our treachery, all of our backbiting, all of our grumbling, all of our death, and lead us through it to brighter dawns, to fuller lives, to glorious renewal. This is the story of our father's son, Indy Wilson describes this love beautifully in Notes of a Tilt-A-Whirl. Are you in shadow? Are you in pain? 
Do not cry to me. I can only cry with you. I will not die for you. I am too young in the meaning of love. Talk to the fool, to the one left who left a throne to enter an anthill. He will enter your shadow. It cannot taint him. He has done it before. His holiness is not fragile. It burns like a father to the son. Touch his skin. Put your hands in his side. He has kept his scars when he did not have to. Give him your pain and watch it overwhelmed, burn away by the joy he takes in loving you, in stooping. In the end, when your life is of a different sort, your first flesh will be dust. And of your grief, not one grain of ash will remain. With so great a king, the son of promise, the Lord of life, where else would we all turn in our pain and need? Go to Jesus. He walked through sorrow, through pain, through death and resurrection so that we wouldn't walk through all of ours alone. He knew you couldn't. He knew I couldn't. This is the ministry of Jesus, suffering. He suffered on our behalf so that he could come and suffer with us through anything that we might be going through. We read in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, this promise. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Time of need. Are any of you in a time of need? Is the, is the place that we run to that gaping wound in the side of Christ where he will comfort us? God the Father has given you aid for every sorrow, for every pain, for every failure, and every need. You never outgrow the need of Christ's redeeming work. And so go to the throne of grace, go to Christ, and be redeemed every day. And last, but not certainly least, let us now consider the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is typically referred to as the forgotten God, um, which is funny because in my introduction, my wife told me I, 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 did, I left out the Holy Spirit, which is funny because it was an introduction about the Trinity. So I had to go back and rewrite it. He's so much the forgotten God that even when you're writing a sermon about him, you forget him. That's what's so funny to me. And there's a reason we forget him. He wants to be forgotten. He wants to. The Son doesn't want us to forget him, but the Spirit likes to go unnoticed. He's the wallflower. He's good just hanging out in the back there, and hopefully no one will notice him. But let me ask you a question. Is it more advantageous to have Jesus or the Holy Spirit with you all the time? If you could choose between the two, I don't know why in the world you would have to, but just... Humor me for a moment. If you had to choose between the two, wouldn't we all choose Jesus? Right? There he is. You can see him. He's the Lord. It would be awesome to talk to him. It would be awesome to sit down and have dinner with him. If we ran out of wine, he could make more. He would be a lot of fun to have at a dinner party or at a theology debate. Right? We would all almost certainly choose Jesus. But Jesus actually says something very interesting in John sixteen seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the, the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's better that Jesus goes away. That's very strange. How can it be? 
How could having the Spirit be better for us than having the risen Lord with us? What does the Spirit provide? That's the first thing that comes to my mind. What's so great about him that I would rather have him with me? Like so many of God's gifts, the Holy Spirit is a treasure trove of other gifts. It's remarkable once you start looking at the things that he does. But before I go on, I just want to point out something. That what Jesus says here shows a great deal of humility. It's a great example of the love at the heart of the Trinity. Jesus isn't a glory hound. He isn't a glory hound. But he gives honor to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's not all about him. He knows how badly we need the Holy Spirit. What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Now I'm dying to know. What is it? Christ is upon his throne in heaven. He's giving orders. It is the Holy Spirit who is the perpetual minister of God's presence among us. That's what one, how one theologian put it. I think he's the field commander. That makes more sense to me. Right? Jesus is in the command center giving orders in the spirit. He says, go take the bridge. The spirit goes and takes the bridge. Usually no one even notices that he's done it. <laughs> go take America. Spirit goes and takes America. That's what he does. He's out in the world doing the things, renewing, applying the blood and the work of Jesus Christ to all of us. That's the Holy Spirit's ministry, putting the fullness of God right here, not only in the midst of our own heart, but in the midst of his people. So let's look at some of the things the Spirit does specifically. First, the Holy Spirit is the giver of life. He is the breath of life, according to Genesis 2.7. Job says in Job 33.4, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. It is the Holy Spirit that gives life to Mary's womb in Luke 1.35. And this one always, every time I tell it to people, it shocks me. It's the Holy Spirit who enters into the tomb and resurrects Jesus. I always thought he did that himself. But he can't. He's dependent. The Spirit is the life giver. He goes in there to the dead body of Jesus and brings it back to life. That's in Romans 8.11, just if you want to be good and check me on that. The Holy Spirit also gives new life to an unbeliever through regeneration. The Holy Spirit applies the saving work of Christ to all of us. Just as the Holy Spirit generated us, created us, he also regenerates us, recreates us. Titus 3.5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit takes Christ's sacrifice and sprinkles that life-giving blood on our hearts, on the stone hearts that we have, just like the high priest used to sprinkle the blood on the altar, the stone altar. The Spirit comes and sprinkles that blood on our hearts and brings us to life. Jesus has accomplished his ministry. He's ascended into his throne where he sits now. He's done that because if he would have stayed here to try to enter into us, he has a body, and so he would have just, you know... Run, run into us. He, couldn't, he can't dwell in us the way the Spirit can. He's permanently, to a certain extent, humbled himself. He has flesh now. And though it's different than ours, he, he has it, and so he can't get in here. So he goes back to heaven, and luckily the Trinity, believe it or not, has the Spirit who can enter into us. He can go right into the center of us. It is the Spirit that builds the body in the, into the dwelling place of the Lord, and closes the physical separation between us and God. He can enter into our hearts and unite us permanently and forever to Jesus Christ in heaven. Ephesians 2.22, In Christ you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God 
by the Spirit. 1 John 3.24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Growing up, I used to think that, believe it or not, Jesus actually had like a little house sort of on the edge of my heart. Like you'd have a house on the edge of the world and he like lived there. Um, It's very confusing the way we talk about it sometimes. He does live in my heart. And it's the Holy Spirit who because he is a spirit, eliminates time, distance, and space. He, he eliminates all that. I'm right here. Here's my heart. Jesus lives there because the spirit unites us together. Him in heaven, me here. He unites us together. This is what the spirit does. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is the active agent. He's the application. He's the mover who, who fulfills all that the Lord wills and commands. The Holy Spirit is the binding agent between God and us and between one believer and another. The Holy Spirit gives, uh, gives us the indwelling unity that Jesus talked about. Remember Jesus said in his high priestly prayer that I would be live in them, they would be in me the way I'm in the Father? It's the Spirit that does that. This is the gift that keeps on giving here. Jesus wasn't done. He gave us the Father, but he wasn't finished. He gives us the Spirit so that we could have both the Father and the Son with us wherever we go, whenever we want access. We serve a triune God. When we say that God lives in our hearts, we are not saying that Jesus is over there in heaven and the Spirit is here with us. It's we're, we're united in, in them. They're always united, and now we are always united within them. God's Spirit dwells in us and illuminates us. Okay, he comes and makes a home here to illuminate our minds, to give us understanding, to bring darkness or light into the darkness of our hearts. First John two twenty, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. This is why understanding things, the apostles understood things, not because they went and got PhDs, but because they had the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the source of knowledge. He's the one that gives us understanding. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is not about tongues or snake handling or barking like dogs or doing funny dances when we are worshiping. There's nothing wrong with dancing when you worship. Just people think that's what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, to come and make us seem like we're crazy. But that's not the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We summarize the Holy Spirit's ministry as remaking us, mind, affections, and spirit into images of Jesus Christ. Back earlier, when, John, or when Jesus said it was better to have the Holy Spirit with us, he went on and said, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is Jesus. He brings Jesus into our hearts. He brings Jesus into our minds. He brings Jesus into our fingertips. He gives us Jesus. He's not about himself. He's not about you and me. This is why when people say the Spirit is there and it's working and the only people getting honor and glory are people, that's not the Spirit. It's a Spirit, not the Spirit. Because the Spirit is like the wind. It stirs, you can't see it or hear it, but you know it's there when it's stirring the trees. You look out the window and you look, oh, look, the wind. When people are stirred up, preaching, proclaiming, lifting up Jesus Christ, talking about him, singing about him, teaching about him. That is where the Spirit is. That's what he's come to do. He comes and he brings Christ into, the, into our midst, into the midst of us, into the midst of us as his people. 
It's his mission to make all things new, to regenerate man by applying the work of Jesus to our lifeless hearts and minds. That was a lot of information, isn't it? It is. This is what I love about this doctrine. This is, uh, my poor students go through this 45-minute class. It's grim for seventh graders. This is why I like this doctrine. If you could fit it into a sentence, if you could fit it into a proposition, if you could fit it into a sermon, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be God. But like I said in the very beginning, it's not an introductory doctrine. It's the doctrine that should drive all of our doctrines. Who is he? Why are we so empty? Why are we so bored? Why are we so thankless? Behold your God. That was what today was all about. Behold your God, who gives and gives and gives. God so loved the world he gave. And he's still giving, and he's ready to give more. What do you need? I don't know. He does. I don't think you do, but he does. And what we need to be are people who get onto our knees and say, what do I need? Give it to me. As hard as it's going to be, as difficult as it's going to be, as much as I don't want it, what do I need? Give it to me. And he's faithful. He's faithful to give. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this difficult revelation of yourself. We thank you that you are not an easy God to understand, an easy God for us to stand over, to judge. We thank you, Father, that the vastness of who you are and the vastness of the gifts that you have given us cause us to kneel down and to be grateful and to be humble. Who are we that you would be mindful of us? Who are we that you would enter into such a relationship in which all heaven and earth is given to us in your Son? Father, what do we need? Give it to us. Give it to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.